Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Whether or not you are a Greek scholar, it turns out that in our text, all of us know a little bit of Greek. In the opening verse of that passage, let brotherly love continue, it turns out you all know the underlying Greek word for brotherly love. It's Philadelphia. Philadelphia, yeah, better known today as a city uh, on the East Coast. And, and actually, if you think about that city, it shows you uh, some of the problems that we have in choosing names for things. Because Philadelphia is named Philadelphia because it's the city of brotherly love. But have you been to Philadelphia? I've been to Philadelphia, and it's not the most loving place I've ever been to. Um, I'm not saying it's the least loving place. It's, it's as loving as any place I've been to, but it's not the most loving. The thing is, those other cities, they're not called the city of brotherly love. Right? We don't have this problem in Sioux Falls. As long as we have the Big Sioux River running through the city and there's a waterfall downtown, we live up to our name. We don't have to put much effort into it. It's just going to be the case that, that we embody our name. But if you live in Philadelphia, the bar is set so high. Right? You can't help but look like a hypocrite. You might be a really loving person most of the time, but, but the one time you slip, you really show. You've got no business living in the city of brotherly love. Right? The logic of naming there, it doesn't make much sense. Those old Quakers must have had a sense of humor uh, or, or they were profoundly optimistic about human nature, one or the other. But the logic of, of, of naming a city that way, it's, it's, it's flawed in the same way that putting a Jesus fish on your bumper is a bad idea, right? Because once you put that fish on your bumper, you have limited your options, right? There are a lot of options you can't like, go to when you're driving. Like most days, you may be on the road and, and, and you didn't flip off anybody. You cussed nobody out. You didn't cut off anybody. Um, no road rage occurred. But the one day it does, you have now announced to the world what a hypocritical Christian you really are. Because you went out into the world with that symbol on your car, and now everything is, is held to a higher standard. Right? That's the problem with naming. Right? If you're, you're naming children, I know some of you are facing this dilemma. When you're naming children, I mean, this is your opportunity to make it easy on them or make it really, really hard. Right, you think about the way the Puritans named their children. They made it really hard. Your parents named you Mercy or something like that. You'd have to be merciful. Or think about us. Think about this church. We kind of shot ourselves in the foot. Right? We named ourselves Grace, which is like a license for people to walk all over us because we have to be gracious about it. Right? Of all places, this needs to be a gracious place. Otherwise, it doesn't live up to its name, and it seems like of, of all people we're most hypocritical. You call yourself grace? You seem judgmental to me. The thing is, a name can show how far short we fall. Right? There are ways of naming ourselves, and all they do is highlight our shortcomings. But when we give things names, we're not just trying to describe what they are. Sometimes we name things in the hope of expressing an ideal. Or, or we name things specifically to express a hope that we hope they will live into and become. I'm sure 
that Philadelphia wasn't named because those old Quakers thought, wow, we're the most loving people in the world. I think they thought by giving themselves a name like that, people would feel the pressure and it would have an effect. It's the same thing with us. We didn't call our church Grace because we've got Grace cornered. We didn't meet for a while, nameless, and then take the temperature and say, well, you know, the thing about us is we're super gracious. We should name ourselves that. Rather, it's an expression of a longing, like a hope. It's a name you want to live into, right, to, to become. And I think naming can be very uh, helpful in that way because we recognize that the names that we embrace, they don't describe who we are. They describe who we want to be. And that's true not just with names. And it's true also with uh, ethics. It's true with the way we live, the principles that we espouse. There are a lot of principles that I embrace, but I wouldn't want you to judge whether or not they're good ideas based on how well I live them. Like, I believe in them and I aspire to them, but I'm certainly not holding myself up as the example of the person who perfectly embodies those ideas. Right? The ideas, the principles, the ethics, the names, what they reveal about me, what they reveal about you, are your hopes, your longings, the things that you're reaching for, hoping to grow into. In Hebrews 13, building on what we saw in the last chapter, we were told that we should be filled with gratitude, that we should now worship in reverence and awe, and building on the idea that that worship is larger than what we typically think. Right? We, we congratulate ourselves because we know that worship isn't just the music in the service. We know worship is the whole of the service. It's like, congratulations. But worship is actually like the whole of life. There's a sense in which all of life should be lived with reverence and all, all of life should be made into worship. And the question is, what does that look like? And the answer is, it looks like Hebrews 13. It looks like the things that we're told to do here. You could read this a number of ways. The way I think makes most sense is to see these words, let brotherly love continue as the introduction to a theme and what follows afterwards is fleshing it out. So it's giving us examples of the kind of Philadelphia that the author of Hebrews has in mind. Like, what does this look like uh, in life? We're given an ethic here for life lived as worship. We want to understand what it means to live all of life as unto the Lord. We start finding out right here. Let brotherly love continue. In other words... Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. So hospitality to strangers. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. So sympathy, identification with prisoners and those who are mistreated. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So marriage should be held in honor, in honor by all. It not just you should honor your marriage, you should honor everybody else's as well. Like together, honoring these marriages, these relationships. Keep your life free from love of money. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So contentment not being seduced by the siren song of all that the world has to give us. Four things, four ideas here, four ways of seeing what brotherly love looks like. 
And each of those things, I think, speaks to a, a larger reality, which is hinted at at the end of our text. At the end of our text, we're told that we don't have a lasting city here, or that we're waiting for a city that is to come. So this is an ethic for how to live a life of worship, but it's an ethic for how to live a life of worship when you're not living in the city that you want to live. You're living for the city that is to come. Does that make sense? So living for the city to come puts theology into practice. If you look at each of these things, you can see that, that these are practical things, right? These are commands. If you were looking for action steps in Hebrews 12, in Hebrews 13, you get them. Right? We could bullet point these things and say, all right, these are the four things I really need to start doing so that I can show more brotherly love. But behind each of them, there is an idea. Behind each of them, there is a doctrine or a teaching of the Bible that is being embodied by this practice. So by letting brotherly love continue, we're not just being nice, we're actually living the faith that we confess. So think about the doctrines behind the ideas. The first we're told to do is to show hospitality towards strangers. We ought to show hospitality towards strangers. It's very easy to show hospitality towards people we like, towards friends. I'm willing to make sacrifices for friends. I'm willing to put up with friends showing up on my doorstep unannounced. Occasionally. But, but strangers is a different story. Because I don't know them. We have no history together. I don't owe strangers anything. So how we treat strangers indicates not like, like how good we are at loving people who love us. It indicates like what we think about human beings in general. And if you want to know what we think about humanity, look at the way that we treat strangers. If we isolate and alienate them, if we don't serve them, meet their needs, if we don't show love and hospitality towards people that we don't know, what we're saying is we have a view of human beings. It's a little bit different than God's. But the reason for hospitality, or let's put it this way, the, the basis for it, the reason why you would show hospitality is not because you expect to get it in return, giving you dinner so you can give me dinner, that sort of thing. And it's not because you expect some, some benefit from the other person. It's not because they deserve it. You don't show hospitality to people who are worthy of having hospitality shown to them. When it comes to strangers, none of those things are factors. The basis for it is the fact that they're made in the image of God. That's the doctrine behind it. That all human beings, believer and unbeliever, all human beings, whatever nationality, whatever stripe, all human beings are made in the image of God and therefore worthy. Worthy. A lot of times, when we think about human beings, we think about the fallenness of humanity. And the fallenness of humanity leads us to be pretty cynical about our fellow man. Showing hospitality to strangers, if we say we're going to go out and start doing that, the first thing you think is, well, what about the bad people? What if I show hospitality to people? And they abuse it. I think God thinks it's better to let that good be abused than not to do the good. But the principle of showing hospitality to strangers is to honor and respect people for who they are made in the image of God. When we treat them this way, when we show them love, we show God love through them. That's what we reveal about ourselves. If we don't show hospitality to strangers, 
then we deny the image of God in our fellow man. But we're also told that we should show sympathy to prisoners and to those who are mistreated. And this is one of those interesting ethics where you begin to see a, a division between Christianity and the world in which it was originally birthed. But sympathy towards prisoners was an important thing in the Roman world because when you were put in prison, uh, you relied on people outside the prison to support you, to feed you, that sort of thing. The, the, the state didn't provide for you at all. Right? So prison was even worse then than it is now. And Christians showed sympathy towards prisoners. They showed sympathy towards them. We're told here to imagine yourself in their shoes. Again, you're being told to put yourself into the shoes of the people who are in the society the most contemptible. We look back with uh, Christian ideas and we read the ancient world wrongly. We think people have always sympathized with the weak. People have always shown charity towards those who needed it. That's not true. In the ancient world, strength was virtue. And weakness was, was a kind of contemptible revelation of your own unworthiness. People were poor. People were prisoners. People were mistreated because they deserved those things. The sympathy that we now assume is just human nature was a result of, of a Christian ethic that transformed the world. So we're told to have sympathy with prisoners, to identify with them, to identify with those who are mistreated because we too are part of the body. And what idea, what doctrine do we prove when we live our lives that way? Well, if we're in the book of Hebrews, I think we have to go back and look at the priesthood of Christ. And if you're asking yourself why you should put yourself in the place of one who suffers, Ask yourself what Jesus as your high priest has done for you. But when we live this way, all we're really doing is following the example of Christ and the willingness that he had to identify with us in our unworthiness, in our suffering, in our imprisonment. You don't want to be the kind of person who shows mercy to those in bondage. You serve the wrong Savior. Because that's what Jesus is all about. He found you in bondage and he showed mercy to you because he saw himself in your place. When we don't live this way, we deny his priesthood. Marriage. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Here we take a little bit of a turn. I think, at least in our day, everything that I've said before, I could say almost anywhere, and people would feel pretty good about what had been said. Yeah, we should care for strangers. Yes, we should sympathize with those who are mistreated. But now you've used the J word, judge. God is going to judge people for what they do. Um, we live in times now when we're more upset by the idea that God would judge the sexually immoral or adulterous than we are by the idea of the act itself. The idea that it would be punished is more offensive to us than the thing itself. As a result of that, right, this is an area that's hard for us to approach. It's hard for us to approach, but what we're being told is 
that marriage should be honored, that that union of, of husband and wife should be honored within the community of Christ, that it should be upheld, and it should be upheld by everyone. It's not just if, if, if you're married, then, then put a lot of effort into that thing. It's all of us together, like supporting one another in these relationships. If you're married or not, be supportive and honor these marriages. This is what we're told brotherly love entails, being supportive of these relationships. And why? You can think of lots of practical reasons, I suppose, that, that this would be a good thing, but, but behind all of that, isn't there an idea, isn't there a doctrine, a teaching, a reality, a higher reality that is being exemplified in marriage? And Paul says so. Paul says when he talks about marriage that we're to see marriages as a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. A picture between Christ and the church. Now, we've talked about this before. We tend to see things like symbols and, and, and pictures as, as less real than, than the tangible stuff that is the symbol. So if I say to you, well, your marriage is a symbol of the relationship between Christ and the church, it sounds like I'm taking something really concrete and real and substantial, which is your marriage, and comparing it to something really sort of abstract and vague and, and intellectualized, which is the relationship between Christ and the church. But part of the reason why the author of Hebrews has talked about like shadows and realities is to turn that kind of thinking upside down. And you would have walked into the temple and said, well, this is an impressive structure that I knock on it and it seems really solid. This is real. And, and heaven, of course, is an ethereal place on the clouds. So whatever's in heaven is less real than what's here in physical. And God's like, oh, no, no. The thing that you're knocking on is the shadow. And the reality is something more real and greater. So saying that your marriage is important because it pictures Christ in the church is not saying something insubstantial or, or uh, frivolous. It's saying something profoundly true about that relationship. That when we dishonor marriage, as we do, as we neglect it, what we're doing is we're, we're, we're pushing back against the doctrine of the church. Like the idea of what the church is and what Christ is to the church. We're denying it with our lives even if we're, we're affirming it with our lips. So let marriage be held in honor among all. And keep your life free from love of money. Be content with what you have. For you said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Right? This is living the doctrine of providence, right? Contentment is living the doctrine of providence. We say God provides. We say that, that he's the one who brings good things into our lives. But if we live our lives driven by the love of money, if we're constantly looking for more things, more security, then we deny with our lives the doctrine that we confess with our lips. We can't just say that we believe in a God who provides for us. We actually have to live as if that's true. And that means breaking free of the bondage or the love of money, the craving, the desire for material things. It means breaking free of fear. Fear of government regulation, 
fear of the marketplace, fear of the customer, fear of the buying public, all of the good opinions of the world that we cultivate, because not to cultivate them could cost us. All of the good that we don't do because it could, it could cost us the good opinion of others on whom we rely for our livelihood. Isn't that a form of the love of money? The unwillingness to do what is right out of fear of what it will cost? Instead, we should be content. We should be able to say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Admittedly, this is a difficult ethic. Like a lot of things in Christianity, I think these words are much easier to say than they are to actually practice. They sound good if you say them the right way, but if you actually live them, they become really hard really fast, which is not surprising because this is not an ethic of this city, of this world, of this present Jerusalem, so to speak. Like this is the ethic of the city to come. Brotherly love, as practiced in the church, is the ethic of a city that, that is already and yet not yet. Uh, if you remember, almost exactly a year ago, we were preaching through Ephesians. And at a certain point, I talked about this idea that, that eschatology could be over-realized or under-realized. You remember that? Everyone's like, yeah, totally. I wrote that down. Uh, so eschatology is like a fancy word for last things, right? So our idea of, of how the world is going to end. So if Christians believe that the world is going to end in this glorious kingdom of God, a new heaven and a new earth, then we can live as if that is already here and, and just live our lives accordingly, and, and that would be over-realized eschatology. A little bit too much already and not enough not yet. And then the opposite would be an under-realized eschatology, right? We're acting as if no part of the kingdom is here when it actually is. But let me break it down a little easier, a, a way of thinking about this in, in terms of how we live. An, an over-realized eschatology might say something like this. This is the city, live as they do here. This is the city, live as they do here. You want to know how to live your life, live the way people live here. Be a good person the way people here consider good to be. Live according to the ethic of this city, because this is the city. In contrast, an under-realized eschatology might say something like that. This is not the city. We can't live here. This is not the city, therefore we can't live here. The Bible's not telling us either of these things. What we see in Hebrews 13 is how to live for the city to come. And it says these words to us, this is not the city, we will live here as if in the city to come. There are a lot of things, as I said before, that we take for granted ethically, that we assume, well, you know, everybody believes in, in certain ideas about what's goodness and, and fairness and that sort of thing. These aren't just Christian ideas, they're just human ideas. But they didn't begin that way. They began as Christian ideas. And Christianity, through its influence over time, made them everybody's ideas, which is a good thing. But when you look at reports on early Christianity, which are pretty scarce, but you look at, at people outside the church writing about the church, and they try to, to describe what's different about the church, the thing that they describe is its charity, its care for its members. Like Christians 
are, are, are just like everybody else. They're not from one particular ethnicity or nationality. They don't dress differently. They live in our cities like we do. But they don't expose their children in the streets when they don't want them. Christians are just like everybody else. They dress the way we do. They come from the same backgrounds that we do. They speak the same languages as we do. But unlike us, like in their church, if you're a slave, your marriage is considered valid just like if you were free. And some of the elders of their church are slaves, not free men. And they still listen to them like they were equals. That makes no sense. It shows these people are basically weak. This is actually one of the earliest criticisms of Christianity. Is It's a perfectly good religion for slaves, not for free people, which is absolutely right. It's a great religion for slaves. The problem is we all imagine we're more free than we are. This ethic is not the ethic of this world, but as we live, as Christ wants us to live, in strange ways it becomes the way people want to live. We hold up Christ to the world. The world does change. No, it doesn't transform. It doesn't become perfect. Like We don't suddenly change everything to where it becomes Christ-like, but a witness for the truth enters into the world, and it does make a difference. It does make an impact. And all of these ways of living, all of these ethics are really forms of worship. Like these are ways of worshiping. Ways of worshiping God in reverence and awe in the world. So living for the city to come puts our theology into practice. But living for the city to come also means staying faithful in a changing present. The author of Hebrews says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. As in the ancient world, so now the world is constantly in flux. It is constantly changing. There are always new ideas. We're always discovering things. And, and that sense of discovery can be exciting. And yet in the midst of all of that, we're told that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Unchanging. And we're being told more than just that Jesus in his eternal character as the second person of the Trinity is unchanging. Specifically, he has in view here the, the revelation of Christ, the doctrine of Christ. Like who Jesus is and what he taught hasn't changed. So that if you're swept up in, as he says, diverse and strange teachings, if you're constantly discovering these exciting new things about Jesus, that's probably not what's true. Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This idea of being grounded in Christ, grounded in the truth, of holding, clinging to that truth is really important in the New Testament. Because Believers then see themselves a little bit differently than we do now. There's obviously a sense in which our discipleship can be seen as a kind of journey. Right? We're on a sort of journey of development and growth and that sort of thing. And I think that's something that, that even the first Christians would have understood. But there's another aspect to that that I think they understood better than we do. And that's the sense of arrival. We're very comfortable with the idea that, that we might be spiritual seekers. We're less comfortable with the idea that we could ever be spiritual finders. 
that we could ever actually know or find anything with, with any level of certainty that would allow us to, to, to actually cling to it and reject everything else. But at least in that sense, those early Christians, they were not seekers, they were finders. And what they were concerned about was not living a, a sort of journey of discovery, borrowing from this and that. They were concerned about not losing what they'd found, holding on to it, living it, and passing it on. They had been given something precious, and they wanted to have that truth entire, and they wanted to pass it on. And that's why suddenly this idea of leaders comes into play. Because in the early church, the way that you would assure that you had this truth, you actually knew what it was that Jesus had taught, is you would follow people who had been with Jesus and been taught by him, or people who had been with people who had been taught by him. And that's how you knew. We sometimes think that there's all this sort of diverse view of, of, of religion and spirituality now, but back then, in the early days, everybody kind of knew what Christianity was all about, and that's not true. In the very beginning, in the very beginning, the, the truth was in danger. Right? It needed to be protected, defended, extolled. That's why we have a New Testament. There are always more people who got it wrong than got it right, let's say. So it was important in transmitting that truth to know the source of where it had come from. So that if I started telling you, oh, it turns out that, that all of Christianity is actually this subtle Greek Gnostic philosophy thing, you would say, wait a second. Peter never said anything like this, and he actually was with Jesus. You know, Paul, when he came to our city, he said a completely different thing. I think I'm going to stick with what he said. So that's the idea here. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. It's not just whoever happens to be in charge, follow the leader. It's really important to always obey authority. The point is, that the leader who is imitating Christ, who is preserving what was passed down, the true doctrine of Jesus, following that example is a way of assuring ourselves that we too are holding on to that truth. So that we suddenly find ourselves swept this way and that way, we should question ourselves. We should ask ourselves whether or not we're really holding on to the truth that we've been given. I'm not saying that we should never question authority. Of course, we should question authority. I'm just saying that sometimes we should also question ourselves. And, and sometimes the authorities we should be questioning are the authorities of this world. Who I think we take far too seriously because they're in the majority. Sometimes it's hard to follow your leaders. I found this to be the case. It's hard to follow for a lot of reasons, but one reason is they're not always leading in the direction you want to go. We've got all sorts of directions we want to go, and it's hard to give that up and say, no, I'm going to cling to this. It's hard for me. I can imagine it's hard for you, and yet we're being told this is important. If you don't want to be led away, then remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Because it's better to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. 
The foods thing is complicated, and, and, and it gets even more complicated as the text continues. But you know that in the ancient world, one of the, the very first um, controversies that Paul has to spend a lot of time addressing is whether or not it's okay to eat food that's offered to idols. And so there's, there's a, to us, a diff, it's a difficult dilemma to enter into because you go to Hy-Vee and there's not even a section devoted to that kind of food anymore. Right? It's not an option that's on the menu, so it's a dilemma that has mostly passed away. So when he says to be strengthened by food, or be strengthened by grace and not by food, it, it, it's, okay, what? But what he's getting at, it is a real distinction, because the, the controversy over uh, offering food, or eating food offered to idols, speaks to a larger situation, which was that these people lived in a world in which the civic religion of their day touched every aspect of public life. When you went to uh, the Colosseum, when you went to festivals, when you went to the marketplace, that sort of thing, the gods of the city, the gods of the nation were honored in those places and sacrifices were made to them. One of the reasons why in the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire could be as open and diverse as it was, open to so many different religions, is because when it encountered new religions, it, it took their gods into its pantheon and incorporated that worship into the larger worship. And as long as you were okay with that, then you were welcome. Your religion was fine. You could believe whatever you wanted to believe from whatever crazy uh, um, background it was from, but, but the moment you weren't willing to integrate it into the larger religion of the state, that was a problem. That was the problem for Jews. The reason why Jews were so contentious to the Romans was not that they were anti-Semitic. It was just that Jewish religion refused to be borrowed and integrated into the larger imperial religion. Like Jews wouldn't offer sacrifices to the emperor in the temple, and if they wouldn't do that, then you had to wonder about their loyalty. And Christians were worse. Christians were worse because they weren't just Jews. They were like from every nation, tribe, and every like Romans, people Romans would leave the gods of the city and start worshiping this other god exclusively. That, that exclusivity was the problem. Living for the city to come leads you away from the altar at the center of the city you live in. It beckons you, it draws you outside the gates. Author of Hebrews says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city. but We seek the city that is to come. The sacrifice that he has in mind is the Day of Atonement sacrifice that he's already connected to Christ's work of atonement on the cross. So what's happening here is actually an example of that thing Jesus does so well where you bring him a question and instead of giving you a direct answer, he turns it all around. So if you're coming to the author of Hebrews and you're saying, is it okay if we offer meat or we eat meat offered to idols? He says, you know what? The people who are sustained by the meat from those sacrifices, it avails them nothing. And the sacrifice that Christ made, no one was allowed to eat from. The Day of Atonement sacrifice, they brought it outside the camp to burn it. The priests who offered it at the center of the city did not partake of it. That is the sacrifice we partake of. 
We have a better sacrifice, in other words. The priests were not allowed to eat of this meat. But we are. We are. But we do it outside the gate. We go to Jesus outside the gate. I think letting brotherly love continue is a challenge for us for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons it's difficult to live a Christian ethic is because it requires us to give up this place inside the city, this place at the altar. We don't want to let that go. We don't want to have to go outside the gate to bear the reproach. And so as a result, the thing we're always looking for, I see this in myself, we're looking for the middle ground. Like what are the parts of Christianity that I can be strong on but I don't have to leave for? Like what what truths can I embrace passionately but they don't drive me outside the gate. And as a result, we tend to, to, to make this, this calculus, right? There are the things that we're going to be passionate about, the things that we're not really going to mention. And you can go down our list in Hebrews 13 and, and tick those things off. What are the things you're strong on? What are the things you don't really want to think about or be made to think about? And the way we do this, it, it's sort of like uh, you lose vision, and you think your hearing will improve, right? So, okay, I'm not showing hospitality to strangers. I don't like strangers. And honestly, people in jail, people being mistreated, they probably deserve it. But I am going to honor marriage like no one has ever honored marriage. And I'm going to be so content, you won't believe it. So, yes, there are some aspects of brotherly love that I'm not going to live, but the ones I will live, I'm going to live so strongly. My light's going to burn so bright that it's going to balance out in the end. I think this is the way we live the Christian life so often. We're really good with contentment. We really hate materialism, and so that's what we go after. All that judgment, sexual immorality stuff, I don't want to hear about that. Really good at hospitality to strangers, but I like my stuff, and I really need more. So we seek to compensate one with the other to balance these things out. But the solution isn't to compensate weakness with strength. What we need to do is give up. Give up on the idea that we're going to stay at the altar here in the city and be willing to go outside and meet Christ outside the gate. Remember when I said a few weeks ago that Jesus doesn't want you to rock the boat? He wants you to get out of the boat and come to him? This is the same idea. It's not that that we're not to be in the world. We are in the world. We do live in the city. But we mustn't live in the city as they live in the city. We're meant to live differently. We're meant to live into the city that is to come. Now, doing that won't bring that city into reality any sooner. But it will change the city God has placed us in. We will then be seeking the welfare of that place as we saw in Jeremiah 29. The altar in the city, the civic religion, that syncretistic thing that that was true in the Roman Empire, it is true now. Where it's okay to believe what you believe as long as you're also willing to make the sacrifice to our God as well. The comfort of that kind of false worship is a voice that comes to you in your sin and says to you, that's not a sin. You don't need to worry about that. 
you've been told that it's wrong and it's not. That it's false. Grace strengthens us not by assuring us that our sin isn't sin. Grace strengthens us by telling us that for your sin, there is forgiveness. For yours and mine, for everyone's. There is forgiveness for sin. There's no need to justify it. There's no need to cling to it. There is forgiveness. Jesus suffered to sanctify us through his own blood. The sacrifice that was made to do that was made outside the city. It was made outside the world, so to speak. It savored of different values. It spoke of different things. As beneficiaries of that forgiveness, as people that Christ has poured out his love on, he calls us to live differently in this world. He calls us to let brotherly love continue. And that's a love that's so demanding. A love that requires so much of us. But it requires nothing of us that Jesus hasn't already given. What we do when we live this way is nothing more than than living Christ's life after him. Which is what we are called to do. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast. 